Amen. <clears throat> Amen. There's there's a certain peace in surrendering all to the Lord. We just sang that song, and I just love the the peace that I kind of sensed as as we're surrendering all to the Lord. And you know what? When you when you send up that white flag and you say, that's it, I'm done with my own ways, I'm done with my own tr- manner of control and trying to manipulate the situation and be everything, I'm, sp- I'm just going to surrender it all to you, Lord, and let your power flow through me, let your power come upon me and do the work. There's a great release, there's a great peace that comes in that surrender. Yeah? But the problem is, now, now for the bad news. <laughs> I, you know, I've often had a hard time singing I Surrender All because I sing it and I don't feel entirely honest. I don't know about you, but I would imagine that a great percentage of the church upon singing I Surrender All rarely surrender all. I mean, uh, I don't think God is angry with us. I think it's a good song to sing. I think there is grace for us, and I think he appreciates the heart. And I think we have the heart. Many, many of us do, at least, have the heart. But when it comes down to the practical and the reality of the matter, we're still very much directing our lives. We're still very much trying to assume control and be at the helm and be in the leadership seat. Uh, I know it's not just me. Some of you are looking at me like, what? No. Am I the only one that's missing it? No. But see, God has grace for us. And a lot of us do not surrender all because we, we don't want to give up our plans, our dreams, our agendas, and things like that. But Jesus promised that those who lose their life for my sake will find it. And if you can have faith and believe that God's dreams, plans, agendas for you are better than your own, that makes it easy to, easier to surrender to all. But a lot of people will not surrender all to God and find it difficult to live for God because of um, cultural influence, for one thing, and sometimes it's a distorted view of who God is. We're going to talk about who is God? What is the nature of God? I mean, we have an idea, we have an understanding. Every week we celebrate the Lord and his love. But when it gets down to practical, sometimes we have a distorted view of God and it makes it difficult to surrender to our distorted view. And a lot of atheists out there, they say, well, I don't want to believe in your God. Your God's this, 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 and this. And, and if you get them to talk about it, you'll see that's not the God I believe in. You mean, I wouldn't believe in that God either, that caricature that you've just spewed out. No. The true biblical nature of God is one that draws us to surrender. But let's talk about surrender in the culture for a moment. Our culture is totally contrary to this idea of surrender. Uh, in fact, you know, as I was growing up, when I first became a Christian, I was... Uh, I was a rocker, you know, I was a partier and things like that, and uh, I was just, my, one of my favorite rock albums was called Never Surrender. And uh, it's not just rock that teaches you that. Good old Frank Sinatra, remember his big hit, I Did It My Way. I did it my, okay, preacher, don't sing, just <laughs> preach, all right. I did it my way. That might be one of the most satanic songs ever written. 
along with never surrender. No, never surrender is fine. It depends who you're not surrendering to. But the idea is the culture has this ingrained in you. You're to be your own boss. You're to be the master of your destiny. You're not to let anyone tell you what to do. And when I first became a Christian, that was very difficult for me to get this idea of surrendering to the Lord. I was, that was back in the day when the old Mel Gibson movies, Lethal Weapon, was playing. And I was highly influenced by Mel Gibson and Lethal Weapon. He wasn't going to take orders from no one. He, was, he wasn't going to let anyone do a thing. He's going to do it his way. And, and it sounds silly now because all these years I've learned how to surrender to God. But at that time, it was a real challenge to, to be submitted and that's one thing our culture does not want you to do, is submit. You're the ruler, you're the boss, you decide. And submitting, well, that's just for you know weak weaklings and things. But I'd ask the culture, how's that working for you? Because, again, Jesus said, those who lose their life will find it. And the culture says, no, you hold on to your life. He also said, those who hold on to their lives, they'll lose, lose that. So... That's the culture. Now, in the church, the nature of God has been distorted at times throughout history. Um, in ancient history, there was a man named Marcion. Here's church history class for you today. There was an ancient bishop's son named Marcion, and he taught, and it became a popular teaching, that there were actually two gods, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. The God of Israel was this wrathful, fiery, uh, angry God. And the God of Jesus in the New Testament was this kind, compassionate, and gracious God. And we obviously laugh and we think, no, that's uh, not that way. But yet practically, sometimes we come to the Lord thinking that God is wrathful and angry with me. Um, my own testimony as a Christian for many years, I thought God was always breathing down my neck and saying, you did it wrong again, you're messed up again, you'll never, I'll tolerate you, but man, you're such a mess. That is a distorted view of God. And if anyone has that distorted view of God, we need to go back to the Bible and change that view. The Bible says to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And, uh, and church tradition has sometimes put out that view like there's an Old Testament wrathful God and grace is just the New Testament, but we're going to see that grace is throughout from beginning to end in the Bible. There is wrath, but we'll talk about that. But to get a glimpse at the true nature of God and who, what, who he really is, what he's all about in relation to us, we go to Exodus chapter 33, 18 to 23, which I'll read here. Um, this is where Moses is on the mount, and he's telling the Lord, if you go with us, we can do it. Your presence needs to go with us, and he's having an interaction with the Lord. And then in verse 18, he comes to the place where he dares to ask the Lord, and he says, please show me your glory. Then he said, the Lord said to Moses, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, You cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. 
And the Lord said, Here is a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock. So it shall be while my glory passes by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So Moses says, show me your glory. And I think that's a great prayer. If you want to be motivated to love the Lord and serve the Lord, it's always a good prayer to say, Lord, show me your glory. I know you're glorious. Give me a divine revelation of your glory. I don't care how it comes. If the glory cloud falls in our church service and we all fall down and worship, that's wonderful. But if it's just seeing uh, something wonderful like a new sign being given to a needy building, that's wonderful too, like we saw this weekend. There's glory in that. But whatever it is, Lord, however you choose, show me your glory. And Moses asked this, we can ask this. In this case, the Lord was preparing him and saying, okay, I'm going to show you my glory and I'm going to proclaim my goodness as I go before you, but you can't look at me directly. You've got to be placed in a safe spot because if we got exposed to the glory of God just directly, it would undo us. And we see something of that in the book of Revelation when John falls before Jesus as dead, when he sees Jesus in his glory and he just can't, he needs the hand of Jesus to touch him and say, don't be afraid. Well, here in the Old Testament, the Lord is saying we put you in the cleft of the rock. And that is sort of a symbol or type of Jesus. We are safe in the rock of Jesus Christ. Why? Because we can't stand before the Lord with our corruption, with our sin, with all that's wrong in us, except by being in Christ. That is the glorious good news of the gospel. Jesus paid it all. Jesus gave it all. Jesus was perfect for all that we might be safe in him, be before the Lord and not have to be afraid. Amen. Well, thank you. Now you're getting some vocals out there. That's good news, and that's the good news of Christ. And when we get in Christ, God invites us into his world of glory, and that's the rest of our walk with the Lord, discovering his glory along the way and preparing for his glory and being trained in his glory so that at the end when the consummation comes and Jesus returns in his glory, in his glory, you too shall appear with him in glory. And we have an eternity of glory to revel in and love and marvel in and be excited in. So... That's getting ahead. For now, we're still in the Old Testament here, so we got to see how God chooses to show his glory to Moses. And so he puts him in the cleft of the rock. He, the next day, I guess it looks like it's the next day in, in uh, chapter 34. So Moses has to be prepared for this. And in verses 6 and 7, we see how God passes by him and what happens. It says, And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And then uh, let's, we didn't have eight on screen, but verse eight says, And Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. So the result of Moses seeing God's glory was worship. And that's how, if you feel like you're a poor worshiper, you need to see God's glory. But I want you to see here in this passage that the idea was that God was going to show his glory to Moses. And what happened when he passed by? 
you know, we would think maybe without knowing this, that if God was going to show us his glory, it would be something astounding, an astounding vision. Again, the glory cloud. And we do see that in different places in Scripture. There's a time in the temple when the Shekinah glory came in and everybody fell down. But here is a personal interaction in which Moses has been dealing one-on-one with the Lord, and the Lord says, I'm going to show you my glory, and he passes by Moses, and there's no booming special effects or earth-shaking things that seem to be happening or at least recorded in this account. Instead, how does the Lord reveal his glory? Through the word. He gives a word, the word of God, and he proclaims, it says he proclaimed his goodness. And what is the word, what is the glory, but who he's saying that he is? And you get this list that he makes. Again, the list says, I'm the Lord, I'm the Lord, and I'm Merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abounding in the goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression. Okay, he's going through this list. Now, if I asked you to make a list, sometimes I did this in China when I taught my Chinese students. When I got, wanted to get to know them the first day of school, I'd say, write down something about yourself. Tell me about yourself. And, and I'd collect them and read them, get to know a little bit about them. And... If I were to ask you to write down something about yourself so that I could get to know you, what would you write as part of who you are? And my guess is one of the first things you wouldn't write is, I'm cranky in the mornings and I sometimes act selfishly. Right? No. You, you probably, I, I doubt that would be the first thing. That might be who you are. That might be something that is part of your nature. But you would probably want to, me to know you on a level above that. You probably wouldn't want that to be my first understanding of your nature. So you'd probably want to say, and the Chinese students would say, uh, I'm a lovely boy, I'm a lovely girl. That's how they talk. I'm a lovely boy, a lovely girl. I like to get along with my friends. I like to, I like to eat food. And I like to have good times with my family and things like that. All these nice things that make you think, well, I would like to spend some time with them because they seem like nice folks and enjoyable. And then, of course, oh, you know, I have this weakness. I, I, I tend to get angry too easily or something like that. But that would not be the first thing. And so you have the Lord here. First of all, in this list, it just starts with good and keeps going. There is something that we might say isn't the most drawing thing. And when she says, I will punish the iniquity I will punish the, the generations for their iniquity. But that is at the bottom of the list. The fact is, is that Lord is righteous. The Lord is just. The Lord will punish. But he doesn't want to relate to us primarily on that level. He wants us to be surrendered to the idea of his goodness and his mercy and grace. I, the Lord. You know, he could have just went by Moses and said, I'm merciful. And that would have been enough for Moses, who was to receive the law and understand that, hey, but God is merciful. This is a glorious God. But he doesn't stop with merciful. He goes on and adds to merciful, gracious. Wow. Well, you know, it would be enough if he was merciful, but he's merciful and gracious. Wait, wait, wait. I'm not done yet. I'm, I'm long-suffering, which means patient. It's almost like he's enjoying this. I'm going to tell you who I am, who I want you to know who I am. I'm merciful, I'm gracious, I'm long-suffering. And Moses could have said, oh, praise the Lord. He could have started worshiping. He said, wait, I'm not done yet. I'm, I'm abounding in goodness and truth. 
Wow, goodness and truth. Okay, Lord, that's wonderful. Wait, wait, I'm not done. Keeping mercy for thousands. Forgiving iniquity. It just keeps going. And transgression. I forgive iniquity. I forgive transgression and sin. Are you getting all this death? You are in good shape with me. Oh, and, uh, and then he says, But visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Well, why do you have to add, add that? Well, because he is righteous and just. And you know what? That even adds to his goodness because he wants us to, to relate to him in his mercy and graciousness. And how much greater is mercy and graciousness when you know that there is severe judgment that could be the alternative? And this is how he wants to relate to us. This is what draws us to him. And it's the goodness of God that leads to repentance. Romans 2.4. And a lot of people don't surrender all because sometimes they're thinking that God is this lawgiver, this just, holy God that is going to uh, just hold them accountable for every single thing. There is something to that, but that wasn't on the list. On the list, he wants you to relate to him and know that he is gracious and long-suffering, patient, merciful. So that means if you mess up, he's patient. You know, I, how, I'm not very patient. I have little patience. I'm like a pediatrician. I have little patience. All right, but, and, and so how impatient I get, yet God has been patient with me for the uh, 22 years I've been living. No, it's a little bit more than that. But, you know, through my whole life, he's been patient with me. He's been patient with the world. Jesus was on this earth for 33 years, but the Holy Spirit's been around for 2,000 plus years being patient with a world that's going mad and crazy and anti-God. God is so loving and patient. Even when we were sinners, he was patient and holding it back, holding us from the wrath. And now, how much more, if you are trusting in him as your Savior, if you love the Lord and you, you're trying to live for him and you mess up, how much more in Christ is he gracious, merciful, and patient with you? But for some reason, it's hard for us to get into that mode. But Jonah didn't have a problem with that. Remember, in the Old Testament, Jonah, you remember the story, he ran the opposite direction. That's called disobedience. And when I run the opposite direction, if that happens, I'm not going to feel very comfortable. I'm going to find it hard to sleep at night. But Jonah didn't seem to have a problem. He slept in the ship when that storm came. There, was, there he was purposely going the opposite direction that God called him to, and yet he had an understanding about the nature of God that it, he wasn't just that afraid. He went to sleep. He went to sleep and, and uh, didn't have a problem. In fact, he said it later in Jonah 4, verse 2. It's one of the reasons he didn't want to go to Nineveh. He prayed to the Lord and said, Was this not what I said when I was still in my country? For I know that you are gracious and, mer and a merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. That's the angry old God of the Old Testament that Marcion said was different from the... No, there, there's Jonah, one of the greatest disobeyers in Scripture, saying, I know that you're gracious and merciful, God slow to anger and abundant. And what a peace and, and blessing that would be, us in Christ knowing that we have that same God, and it's even amplified, magnified, because we are in a different covenant than even Jonah was. 
And here's an amazing statement of grace in the Old Testament. You think there's just wrath in the Old Testament and grace in the New? Look at Numbers 23, verse 21. This is where the Moabite king Balak hired a prophet, Balaam, to curse the Israelites. He wanted to curse the Israelites. And if you recall, the Israelites were pretty curseable. They had, uh, you know, we'd already seen that they had developed a golden calf when Moses was on the mount. And they were worshiping this golden calf, saying, these are the gods that brought you out of Egypt. That's called idolatry and sin and everything you can think of when it comes to uh, slapping the face of God, right? And then in the wilderness, the complaining, the murmuring, and uh, saying, we had it better when we were in Egypt and all this stuff, as if God didn't do anything, splitting the Red Sea for them to go through and getting them out of their slavery. And they were obstinate, rebellious, Complaining, And what Balak tried to do was to get Balaam to come and curse the Israelites. And Balaam told Balak, I can only speak what God says. So he was willing to curse the Israelites. But when it came down to it, here's what God said. He spoke through Balaam in Numbers 23, 21, that God has not observed iniquity in Jacob, <coughs> nor has he seen wickedness in Israel. The Lord his God is with him, and the shout of a king is among them. Did you hear? He has not observed iniquity in Jacob, nor has he seen wickedness in Israel. Well, how can that be? He even punished them in the wilderness, right? But when you have an enemy coming against God's people, God's going to say, no, I haven't seen any of this. And that's not to say God's not going to deal with you. There are consequences. There's discipline sometimes. But... That is the secondary. The first thing is that in Christ, and even back then, before Christ, God did not observe iniquity or wickedness in Israel. That is one of the most amazing statements of grace in the Old Testament. How could that have been in the Old Testament? And you think of David, who wrote most of the Psalms. How many times did David just delight in the Lord? How many times do we see that his loving kindness endures forever, his mercy endures forever. How much praise and worship is going to the Lord? How can it be? And David also delighted in the law, too. In Psalm 119, he gives one of the longest psalms about the good goodness of the law and, and how great it is and how God works through it. But, but he was never outside of the idea of God being merciful, kind, gracious, even, even uh, amazing grace, like we sang earlier. Psalm 32 is one of the great expressions in the Old Testament. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. So, how could David say this? Christ hadn't even died yet. And yet, David had a relationship with God. He had a heart after God. And, and God revealed himself. And that's what God does when we love him. There is just a soft spot in the Lord for those who love him. And how can he be just and overlook these things? Well, it's because Jesus came. And we look back on what Jesus did. I, I would theologically say, Rickology, theology, that he was able to bless people with grace in the Old Testament because they were looking forward, although they didn't see what we see now. It's clearer now. But... They had what they had, and God gave them grace with what they had. And what you have, God gives you grace with what you have. 
But it's, it's a blessing to know that we are dealing with a, a Lord who's not just tolerating us and beating us with a stick at every wrong move, but he loves us. And so when we say, I surrender all, it's not like, i got to surrender because God is, is, is going to get me if I don't. It's, it's a surrender of love. Like when someone decides they want to get married. When someone wants to get married, they surrender themselves to something. They, or at least, if it's going to be a healthy marriage, you surrender yourself. You give up your singlehood. You give up the freedom that you had when you were a single. And, you know, you give up who you're going to spend time with. And you're going to give up living for yourself because there's another person now. But it's not this thing, well, i got to just give all this stuff up. People often run to their weddings with anticipation and excitement because they're going to give up this old life in surrender to live a different life with Another, a union with another that's going to change some of the things they do and, and think and where they've been in the past. See, that's the surrender we're talking about because they're thrilled to do it because of love. And so the same thing with the Lord. You want to be thrilled with the Lord, that's going to empower a greater surrender. And you're going to say, it's no problem. I don't need this stuff. I'd rather be letting you take charge of my life, Lord. So what about the wrath then? I've, I've, I've talked about all this good stuff. God loves us and there's mercy and grace in the Old Testament. But let's not, you know, let's not uh, just gloss over it, Pastor. There's, there's wrath. There's some judgment. There's some pretty fierce things that happen. And uh, so let's talk about that for a second. When I was in school... Uh, it was required reading. I doubt it is today, but in, our, in high school, I was in high school uh, just a few years ago. No, but I don't think they do this anymore, but part of our American literature that we had to read was a sermon by Jonathan Edwards. And if you're familiar, many of this church, I'm sure, are familiar with who Jonathan Edwards is, right? And this sermon was called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And we had to read this in literature class. And let me explain to those of you who are uninitiated. Sinners in the hands of an angry God is the fire and brimstone Christian sermon. I mean, if you want hellfire and brimstone, if you want to be challenged and shocked and scared, this is what Jonathan Edwards preached twice. And here's the interesting thing. Jonathan Edwards preached it in his church. And people said, oh, that's nice. Thank you. And then a few weeks later or months later, I don't know when, but he was invited to preach it in a different church in Connecticut. He was in Massachusetts. He went to Connecticut, preached the same sermon, and people fell out of their pews. People started shrieking and wailing. They were beating their breasts. They were repenting, and it was revival. I mean, it, it just shook the congregation. Isn't that interesting? You can get it in one place and it just, okay. And in this place, something happened and it was amazing. And, you know, people call Jonathan Edwards the greatest theologian in American history. And I'm here today to tell you that he was a terrible theologian. Terrible. <laughs> now I'm going to get some letters and things, right? Well, listen, let me tell you first, uh, one thing is, when I became a Christian, Jonathan Edwards was a big influence in my life, a big, big influence, and I can thank him 
for much of who I am today as a Christian from some of the things I read. But the things I read were the devotional things. This man was a man of God, had a heart for God, had a spirituality that I, I still want to aspire to. He was a model in that respect. But his theology wasn't very good. And I came to say, wow, how can this... And, you know, there's some other things about it. Um, and I took a class about him when I was in school, and, and I still would read him today, the good stuff. So, so I'm not putting Jonathan Edwards down, but I was saying his theology was often not what I would say is right. That doesn't mean that I have it all together either. Some of you might question my theology, but um, Sinners in the Hands of Angry God is an example of this. Even though it's an excellent literature piece, consider the metaphors. It's great. The picture, the word pictures. I'm going to read a portion of it to you. But it's, uh, it's not showing the true nature of God as we've just been looking at. Let me read just a little bit. Since they don't teach this in school anymore, for those of you who need to hear it. Here's the excerpt. It says, The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear you in his sight. You are 10,000 times as abominable in his eyes as the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince. And yet it is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. God's hand has held you up. There is no other reason to be given why you have not gone to hell since you have sat here in the house of God provoking his pure eye by your sinful, wicked manner of attending his solemn worship. Yea, there is nothing else that is to be given as a reason why you do not this very moment drop down into hell. O sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. It is a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit full of the fire of wrath that you are held over in the hand of the God whose wrath is provoked and incensed as much against you as against many of the damned in hell. You hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it and ready every moment to singe it and burn it asunder. Now that goes on for pages and pages. And it's an excellent piece of literature. I mean, you can just pick, you can almost smell the smoke as, uh, as it's going. And, and you know what? Jonathan Edwards is still one of my heroes. I don't agree with his theology, but he has another piece on heaven that is just as good in the opposite direction. And uh, maybe we'll read that sometime, and we'll just start to float and waft up to heaven. The thing that made him great was his heart for the Lord. And I think God excuses our theology and, and our failures and our wickedness and things when our hearts are given to him and they're truly given to him. We're not just deceiving ourselves and saying, oh yeah, I love the Lord and taking his grace for granted. That doesn't work. If you really take his grace seriously, you understand that he's good, that he doesn't abhor you. And uh, those things like the God is abhor you, you're abominable in his sight, you cannot reconcile that with the fact that he sent his son to save you because he saw value before you were saved. Why did Jesus come? Because God saw something fit 
and worthy in the human race. Yes, there are abominable things about us, but he's not holding that in consideration. He's holding the love that he has, that he can't help himself but to say to Moses, I'm merciful, gracious, and not only that, I'm long-suffering, I'm good, and, and I'm forgiving iniquity, sin, and transgression. He's expressing who he is to Moses, and it's not in these terms like, man, everybody's in trouble. They're just being held by a slender thread. And yet God can use a sermon like that and bring people to repentance. And yet God is a holy and righteous, just God, and there is judgment coming. But what about the wrath and judgment? In Lamentations 3, verse 33, it's very telling. It says, He does not afflict willingly nor grieve the children of men. So as a just and righteous God, there is going to be punishment. There is going to be judgment at the end. And there is discipline. But it's not something that he wills. It's not his heart. It, he, he does not afflict willingly nor grieve the children of men. He doesn't want to have to do those fearful and awesome things. Right? How many parents had to discipline their kids and spank their kids or ground their kids? It's not the parent's heart to want to do that if they're a good parent. It's not the parent's heart. The parent would much rather see the kid doing well and bless the kid and give to the kid. See the kid joyful and well. And then it grieves the parent if they have to take measures to correct an action or to, to show the consequences for something. But the heart is not in that place. You know, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. That's a lie. <laughs> but it is something. I mean, it is, it is true that it hurts when you have to take those kind of measures. So it's not like the parent is saying, I abhor you, and the only reason you're even under this roof is because you're on a thread. That's wrong. Another thing the Lord says in Ezekiel 18, verse 23, it says that, and this reveals the Lord's heart, do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and not that he should turn from his ways and live? Do I have any pleasure in this? Don't I want to see the best for you? Why do you keep going down a track that's destructive and damning and hurtful and harmful to you? See, the reason people sin is because they don't want to have the, the greater pleasures that are, you know, people reason they, they sin because they want pleasure. But what they're really doing is they're cutting off the greater pleasure, the deeper pleasure, the deeper joy that God has intended for us. God came that we might have life and have it more abundantly it's the devil that comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And so, do I have any pleasure that the wicked should die? It grieves the Lord that you follow Satan into his traps. It grieves the Lord that you go on a track and a, and a tradition and a practice that hurts you, destroys you, destroys body and soul, and eventually takes you to hell. This is not what God had in mind. God did not create the world so that we could all just mess up and, and, and turn our backs on him and let him say, okay, well, I'm going to show you who's boss now at the end. No, he has to be just. He has to correct what has been perverted and destroyed and corrupted. That's how the kingdom's going to come in. He's going to right all wrongs. And we're either going to be on the right side with him or we're going to be on that other side. And the reason most people are going to be on the other side because they never got this vision of God's goodness. 
They never got the idea that God loves them in spite of their despicable selves. They never got the idea that God is merciful in a world that's holding everyone to account and canceling them for any wrong thing that's ever been done. God is patient, as he's told Moses. I'm long-suffering. I don't cancel you. I keep going. I keep showing you kindness even if you don't acknowledge me. Yet, why would you die? I want you to live. And that's the God we see in the Old Testament. God had to punish the world for the, with the flood, but it says in Genesis 6, 6 that he was grieved before that. He was grieved with what happened. It's not this abhorring, you're abominable kind of thing. It's, it's like, man, I would have had better for you. In fact, that's what he made in the beginning, and that's what we see coming in the end, the better. That's why he sent Jesus, and we are a part of a new covenant now. You know, God dealt with people with the punishments and things in the Old Testament. It grieved him. It wasn't what he wanted. It wasn't what he was willing to do. But he changed everything when Jesus died on the cross. He brought all our punishment for all our sins, past, present, and future, upon a perfect sacrificial lamb on the cross. And Jesus himself didn't sit there and go, why me? But he went willingly, and then he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. There's the heart of God, too. There's the heart of God. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. They are lost sheep. They're not in their right minds. Show them, Lord. And like Moses said, show them your glory. He didn't, Jesus didn't say, show them your glory. But Jesus revealed throughout with his disciples, I want them to be where I am. I want them to be with me in glory. God's heart for us is glory, not judgment. And... And the Christian, as I'm talking about the nature of God today, is you're trying to surrender all. I surrender all. No, we don't. We hold back so much. But the more we get a glimpse of his glory and that the, he really does love us in spite of the lies we tell ourselves, the more we're willing to surrender to him and say, I want to be married to my husband, the Lord. I want to sacrifice all this other stuff because there's so much more in Christ than otherwise. We're going to wrap this up, but there's one other thing we have to talk about when we talk about the nature of God is that something tragic will happen. Uh, someone will get sick, someone will die, you lose your job, whatever it is, and you say, the Lord did this. And the truth of the matter, according to Scripture, is the Lord doesn't do everything that happens in our lives. And this, you might get upset with me and say, well, Jonathan Edwards has bad theology. What about you? Well, I'm going to prove it by Scripture. God is in control. He will ultimately have his way, his purposes. And he can control at any time and moment in certain specifics. But he does not ultimately move everything around like we're puppets and chess pieces. He gives us a heart to have relationship with him. And he gives us uh, the way to live by in faith that will produce fruit. Or we can make our own way and not produce fruit. But he doesn't control everything. If he controlled everything, uh, then you'd say, be saying that he controls your sin. You know, God's will doesn't always come to pass. On the ultimate level, yes, it will. But in the micro level, his will doesn't always come to pass. Otherwise, we'd say sin is his will because everybody's sinning out there. And God's will is clearly stated in Scripture. He does not want us to sin. We have other examples. In Jeremiah 32, verse 35. The Israelites, they built the high places of Baal, which are in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to cause their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire to Moloch, which I did not command them, nor did it come into my mind 
that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. How can that be? It didn't come into his mind. It's like he was surprised. Now, we know you can't surprise God, but on a relational level, he's telling them that this didn't even come into my mind. And then you have in Isaiah 54, verse 15, he tells them that uh, they will... Do we have that scripture up? If we don't, it talks about how the nations will gather, the persecution will come, and he specifically says, but it will not be by me. In other words, I'm not doing this to you. This is coming, but I'm going to stand up for you, he says in that passage. So, scripturally, God is not doing everything, so he didn't steal your loved one. You know, they say that Ted Turner became an atheist because his sister died, and he was told, well, the Lord took her, and he just thought, how can the Lord take my sister? How can he be so cruel? And then he, he turned, and he became an anti-God person. You know, this is the kind of thing that if there was some better thinking about it, no, the Lord doesn't take people. Jesus came to give life. It's the devil that steals, kills, and destroys. Well, why did he let the devil do it? Why did he let the world continue on? Why does he let us go on with all the suffering of things? I don't have answers for that. All I can say is it's not God doing it and that he, in his wisdom he has something prepared if we can just have faith and get through it. We don't have all the answers. We don't know why bad things happen. But we do know four biblical reasons why bad things happen, why there is suffering, why there is evil. And I'm going to tell you the four reasons. It's not because God's doing it and giving people cancer or running people into trees in their cars and, and taking lives. He's not doing that. It's the devil that comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's one reason there's suffering in this world. There is a devil. There is spiritual opposition. There is temptation and warfare. There are demons and angels warring over us in the unseen realms, and we fall prey to their influence at times. And uh, sometimes they can do things that make suffering an evil. That's one. Two is the basic one is that there is sin. Sin is any transgression of God's ways or laws. And when we sin, we reap the fruit of sin, which is destruction. Every problem we suffer in this world is a result of sin. Not necessarily your sin, but it's a result of the corruption of sin that has infiltrated life. And that's why Jesus came, to redeem us from the curse. That's the good news. God who didn't want to leave us in the sin condition. But that's why. So we have a devil that causes suffering. We have sin that brings about natural suffering. Then we have choices, personal choices and other people's choices. Your choices may not necessarily be sinful. They might just be unwise and you get into trouble because of them. You know? I don't, I, and uh, then there are other people's choices that affect us. There are people who smoke around you that might lead to lung cancer when you don't smoke. You get their secondhand smoke. It's not your choice. You didn't do it to yourself, but it's because of other, other people's choices. There are unwise choices. They may be sinful. They may just be unwise and not following the wisdom of the Lord. That's why we got the book of Proverbs, a whole book of Proverbs to give us wisdom, how to avoid the troubles and avoid the suffering by walking in the ways of the Lord. And the final reason, the fourth reason, may not, that may, there may be more reasons, I only know these four, but the fourth reason is just that it's a broken world. Things just aren't right. And again, this is why Jesus came, because he is working to make things right. There is a perfect pattern in heaven 
that is being played out as we follow the Lord, as we receive him, as we walk in his ways, he's making things right. But ultimately, things won't be totally right until Jesus returns. But when he does, he will set up a kingdom wherein righteousness dwells. And we get to be a part of it in a world where there's no pain, no suffering, no curse, no sin, no sickness, and uh, where everything is glory. Amen. And that's what I think is worth following Jesus for at this time. And it's not just the end reward. He rewards us along the way. Oh, but it's hard. I've got to be patient through this trial. Well, God's been patient with you. And you know what? God can give you a peace and a joy in the trial that astounds and confounds those around you. It can astound and confound devils. You can actually be praising the Lord in the midst of a trial receiving the life that penetrates the flesh into the soul, into the spirit, and you can actually be uplifted. But it doesn't come just like that all the time. Lord, help me, give me praise. No, you have to be walking in a mindset of who is God and who am I in relation to him, being in the word to discover that and growing in these things. And the more we grow and the more we believe, the more empowerment, empowerment we have in those difficult times and things. But a lot of people don't receive it because of faith, and it limits what God can do. Yes, God can be limited. And I'll wrap it up real quick, but you got to see this. It's Scripture. Psalm 78, 40 to 41. How often they provoked him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. Yes, again and again, they tempted God and what? Limited the Holy One of Israel. No, God can do whatever he wants. Well, we've been taught that, right? But what does scripture say there? You can limit God. How? Well, they tempted him again and again. They didn't believe. They grieved. They complained. They kept going about their own ways. And they limited the Holy One of Israel. Jesus himself, when he looked over Jerusalem, wept and said, How often I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. Now, God is unstoppable, and ultimately, God will always have his way in the end, but he has put us in a position of relationship in which he depends on our faith and our obedience for him to work. He wants to do wonders in our lives, and sometimes he does bless us by an act of grace that we just never thought of or deserved, probably more often than we understand that he does this. But there's so much more he wants to do in our lives, but we limit him through a lack of faith and disobedience. Why not take off the limits and say, okay, God, have your way with me. I'm married to you now. I'm giving myself. I'm going to surrender all to you. You surrender all to God, and God's going to surrender all to you. He's going to surrender all his benefits, all the blessings of his love and comforts and grace and mercy. What a deal. What do you get is much more than what you give. And as the last motive to surrendering to all, consider that Jesus surrendered all for you. Jesus left the glories of heaven, the perfection, the comforts, the praises of angels. The, he, he surrendered all that, made himself of nothing to walk 33 years on this corrupt planet, sweating and stinking and dealing with misunderstanding and treachery and betrayal and, and corruption and sin everywhere, ultimately surrendering all up upon the cross. For people who didn't seem to understand, and for many, his own people, rejecting him, 
people insulting him and saying, well, if you're so powerful, you're a king, save yourself. I don't know about you, but I, I probably would not have had the patience and grace. I would have said, okay, I'm going to show you who I am. And yet, he surrendered all that. He surrendered his pride. He surrendered his glory. He surrendered his majesty for a time. He surrendered all for you and me. And that's, that's shouting stuff. I can't believe there's a world out there that just goes on. They don't know this. They don't even consider it or think it. And yet God, the glorious God, the creator of all, and to whom all is due to him, he surrendered it all so that we could have everything. Now I want to sing, I surrender all again. <laughs> but um, you know what? Even, even when we're wrapped up in this moment, there's still things that are holding back. But I want to give us a chance now. God has grace and knows your weakness and your flesh. He wants to take that. He wants to do something with it. But you've got to give your heart to him the best you can. And you ask the Holy Spirit, come help me and let me be one who surrenders all. Give it to him this morning and understand the grace. As we sing it, he has grace. He knows your spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. But if you submit to him, maybe you just give him something more than you've given him in the past. Maybe you have a hard time surrendering all. Well, work your way up to it. Give him a little bit more today and then see how it goes. And then give him a little bit more. Give it all to him if you can. But if that's been a struggle, if that's hard, then concentrate on his goodness now and how he surrendered all for you and give him what you can. And he'll take what you give him, he'll multiply it if you'll believe and be obedient and not limit the Holy One of Israel.